It wasn't that long ago that financial tech companies weren't all that buzzy, not all that cool. The regulation, the Wall Street incumbents, the lack of IPOs. Yeah, okay, maybe PayPal basically helped create a whole generation of startups, but they were old hat. Fintechs just weren't that big. I think before people used to think it was cool, like, hey, cool little niche that you found, but you're not gonna take some like mass market market share. That's Henrique Dubugras. He founded Brex in 2017 to sell corporate credit cards to other startups. A nice little niche. Now the startup is applying for a bank charter and raising money at an $8 billion valuation, the information reported last month. Brex is one of the many fintech companies now riding a wave of venture capital. This isn't just startups building internet payment systems anymore. They are selling credit cards, offering banking services and stock trading, or underwriting insurance. And they're growing fast. If you look at just the amount of signups that like Chime or Robinhood are having compared to the traditional players, you know, they're like, I think at this point, even larger than probably a lot of these incumbents combined. This is the Information's 411. I'm Corey Weinberg. And on today's episode, we're talking fintech. Why has there been such a boom and how could it deflate? We'll bring in my information colleagues, Kate Clark and Berber Jin, who have been breaking a ton of news on which VCs are falling over themselves to fund these new companies. There's Plaid, Ramp, Rex, Fast. What these startups lack in syllables, they make up for in valuation. I'll also speak to Merritt Hummer, a partner at Bain Capital Ventures who invests in the sector. Then in the back half of the episode, more of my interview with Brex co-CEO Henrique Dubagras, who talks about how the company is emerging out of the pandemic. First, what do we mean when we talk fintech? What exactly is it? Merritt Hummer has been investing in the sector for Bain Capital Ventures over the past several years. The definition has broadened, she says. Five years ago... An archetypal fintech company might have been a company selling technology to a bank or maybe a digitally native company trying to be a bank itself. Now it's all about what she and her colleagues call embedded fintech. And the idea behind embedded fintech is that software companies will deliver financial services to consumers and businesses in the future rather than financial institutions themselves. And we've seen that idea proliferate in a very short period of time. That is part of the sea change in fintech, a sector in which investors used to lament that there hadn't really been that many big financial exits. One potential exit was supposed to come last January. One of the sector's up-and-comers, Plaid, was getting acquired for more than $5 billion by Visa, the largest U.S. credit card network. Basically, Visa wanted to expand beyond physical credit cards, and Plaid provides key digital infrastructure. Its software connects consumers' bank accounts to financial apps like Venmo and Acorns. But a few months ago, the deal died. Hey, well, Visa and Plaid are terminating their $5 billion merger that just out here. Uh, this comes after, after the DOJ sued to block that deal there was a major silver lining from the government blocking the acquisition. Plaid is now worth a lot more money. I asked my colleague Kate Clark, who covers venture capital for the information, about this. In the year that's passed since Visa announced its acquisition of the company, which 
what's actually over a year ago now, January 2020, the market for fintech companies, particularly the revenue multiples for these valuations, has changed dramatically. Kate reported in March that Plaid was raising a new round of private funding, which would value the company between 10 and $15 billion. So a company like Plaid, which was valued at $5 billion by Visa, can now go out and raise at high as a $15 billion valuation. Although we do not expect that deal to close at high, as high as $15 billion, I can guarantee that there are investors that would be willing to pay that price for the company. And what would drive a valuation increase like that in just a year or so? I think what's driving this is, in part, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, in which a lot of people have become more comfortable with digital payments and companies like Plaid and Stripe power consumers shopping online and, and, and using digital payments. And then there are the comps, the comparable companies on the public markets. Their stocks are up significantly. Square, the Jack Dorsey-run payments company, saw its gross profits and its stock soar amid the pandemic. That was in part because people were depositing stimulus checks in Square's Cash App, which allows people to send and receive money. Another company called Adyen, which processes payments for Uber and eBay, also grew in part because of growing online sales. Berber Jin, who also covers VC for the information, has also been breaking news about fintech deals. You know, for a long time, there wasn't much innovation in the space because they were dominated by, you know, traditional players like like banks, for example. Berber and Kate broke news earlier this week about Ramp, which competes with Brex by selling corporate credit cards. Ramp was finalizing two rounds of funding that will value the company at $1.6 billion. And the deal was kind of a frenzy. It was actually two rounds of funding on top of each other. And one of the investors in that round was Stripe, and they wanted a larger stake in the company. So they basically immediately turned around and led their own investment in Ramp, $50 million at a $1.6 billion valuation. So, so basically, they invested at the same time, but they invested at a higher price, probably because the round before that was was done and was subscribed fully and the the company didn't need more money apparently they they changed their mind and took the extra capital from stripe so so that really shows i think just how hard investors are working to get into these deals you know they're willing to invest at a higher price at the exact same time basically that another investor is investing at a lower price one factor driving the fintech craze is stripe that privately held san francisco based payments giant We've talked on this show before about how Stripe was using its own balance sheet to fund hot startups. And Stripe itself became the most valuable U.S. privately held startup ever last month when it raised money at a $95 billion valuation. Another factor is Robinhood, the trading app that has been embroiled in controversy for fueling a retail-driven trading mania. But investors like mania. It's good for growth and returns. Robinhood has filed to go public. And these types of outcomes are driving a lot of FOMO from investors. Massive tech financiers like Tiger Global Management are putting money into one of Robinhood's direct competitors called Public.com at a $1.2 billion valuation. Investors aren't thinking really about what are these young companies doing today. It's about what can they be in five years. Here's Berber. I was just talking to an investor today who was, you know, when I brought up, for example, the sort of massive valuations that uh, Tiger was offering, they did a, a deal, for example, in public.com that valued the company at over a billion dollars. Um, and, you know, he was saying it's, it's quite, it, it, could, it could be a reasonable bet if you look at it, if you think that the company is going to be worth 
you know, 10 plus billion in, in, in five to 10 years. And, and he seemed to think that, you know, that was a reasonable outcome for, for lots of companies. So I think a lot of it does have to do with revised expectations for many markets being larger than investors uh, once thought was possible. But of course, the enthusiasm, like a lot of tech investing enthusiasm these days, could very well be overheated. I asked Kate about this. This stuff's getting pretty hot pretty early. Um, are investors you're talk either of you are talking to worried about valuations getting out of whack? I think short answer is yes. I think there is some people who are um, urging a lot of caution. I, one of the issues you know, we've certainly talked about internally and a little bit in some of our stories is the lack of diligence that happens on these deals. Merritt Hummer from Bain Capital has absolutely noticed this too. Startups with little more than a fintech idea are minting big valuations right away. Just recently, you know, there was a, a pre-seed deal that came out of YC with a good team and an idea uh, that was valued at $20 million. Um, and I think that that's the type of deal construct that's becoming more and more common. And personally, I worry that the art of investing is really coming under assault and valuations have become so disconnected from companies' fundamentals. At some point, she said, those fundamentals and valuations will have to converge. Founders don't have to have a lot proven to raise money these days, but there's still several key reasons why all this action is happening. E-commerce is booming, so the financial services delivered online is booming. And thanks to software, new types of lenders have a better idea of how businesses are using their capital. They can make smarter lending decisions. And consumer stock trading apps have hooked a new generation of stock pickers, at least for now. I think a lot of the hype in fintech over the last few years has actually been, um, at least so far, has been deserved. And we'll see if it gets out ahead of itself in the years to come. Earlier this week, The Information held an off-the-record event in partnership with Singapore, Passion Made Possible, about the future of fintech and banking as a service. And one of the participants in that event was co-founder and co-CEO of Brex, Enrique Dubagras. And he has agreed to come on the 411 to chat more about fintech and banking. Enrique, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. So let's start with your story, which has been really interesting, particularly over the past year, you know, as we're speaking about a year out from the pandemic. Uh, people were kind of writing your obituary uh, around this time last year. You you laid off about 15% of your staff in June. You had to cut credit limits to reduce exposure um, uh, as, as some of your startup customers were laying off staff. How did you handle the crisis? It seems like you emerged uh, from the other side of it. Yeah, look, I think that um, in, in, in our business as fintech, especially if you have a, a little bit of a balance sheet component, right? Going through a recession is always scary because, you know, even, even it was kind of like our first recession through Brex. So um, we have all these theories and models about how we perform in a recession, but until you actually get there, you don't actually know, right? And every time that um, I talk to an, you know, kind of like older, you know, banker from the financial service sector has been in banking for like a long time. Everyone said, yeah, everything's going great, the bull market, but whenever the recession hits, you know, that's when I want to see higher credit models do. So we were quite scared around that time because we, we really, you know, we had a lot of thoughts and we were confident, but we didn't really know 
Um, so we, we, you know, we, we took the most, I would say, uh, precautious measures of, you know, conserving cash and, um, and tightening credit limits and doing stuff to protect so we could be around to see the light of day. But what happened wasn't nearly, not even close to what we thought the worst case scenario was for our business. And I think because of a few things, because of the nature of our kind of like real time underwriting, the fact that most of our customers are the next generation of businesses, right, between startups and e-coms, uh, it, it wasn't the sector that was not only it wasn't like the most affected, but it also a lot of them actually had like tailwinds, you know, with COVID. Right. A lot of your customers became, you know, went sort of into growth mode. Exactly. So it ended up all being fine, but we didn't know that at the time, right? At the time, we were just trying to be as conservative as possible. Um, and I think, you know, kind of like thanks to our customers and the novelty of our credit model, we were able to kind of pretty quickly uh, jump out of it and, and, and get back to growth mode. So what does growth mode mean now? I mean, historically, I've sort of known of, as you guys as not only being the startup with that, you know, sort of South Park restaurant that you opened up, but, uh, you know, you sell a credit card to that's tailored to startups. And now, you know, you are applying for a banking charter. Why, why the leap? Yeah, I think like, you know, since the beginning, we always knew that corporate card for startups was only the beginning of what we were doing, right? Actually, the, the first idea for Brex, we, we wanted to build a, the banking product, but we, we thought it was like, hey, who's going to give their money to these two random Brazilians, you know, that just showed up in the US. Um, so, so we decided to start with uh, the credit card because that's kind of like in some way building the brand and instead of asking for people's money, it's kind of like, you know, giving them the, 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 the card. But we, we always had a much larger vision than that. And now, you know, we're every day we're shipping new features such as instant payouts and, and expense controls and a bunch of other stuff that we're, we have to announce, which is going towards our vision of being the financial operating system for businesses. In times like this, when there are so many hot rounds getting raised and being raised quickly and at very high prices, that it, it obviously creates the possibility of a bubble and kind of upsets the... Uh, you know, the the kind of steady upward trajectory that companies hope to be on. Um, which side are you on? Is this all gravy or, or, or are you anxious at all about sort of the pace and prices of, of these financings? I think venture is, is doing the exact same thing it always did. It's just because of the size of the companies that succeed are so much larger um, than, you know, everything on the early stage side also becomes much larger. And I think on the public side, you know, in theory, public markets are supposed to be efficient in the long run. So we'll see. But it, it seems like, um, you know, it was going to adjust down or up a little bit, but it's not going to, you know, it's not that the $20 billion companies are actually worth five, you know, maybe they're worth 10 or 15 or 25 or 30. Now, uh, you know, we reported, I uh, believe, uh, last month that you all were in talks to raise new capital, about an $8 billion valuation in that Tiger Global Management uh, hedge fund and venture investor was among the candidates that could sign on. Um, I don't think that you have announced that funding yet. Kerda, can you update us at all on that? Yeah, nothing to announce yet. Full stop. <laughs> Full stop. 
I wanted to ask you just briefly about competition because we, my colleagues wrote about a competitor of yours, uh, Ramp, raising new money, uh, including from Stripe, obviously the, the, uh, the, the, the big dog in, this, uh, in the payment space. Um, how do you distinguish yourself from companies like Ramp that are building similar products and you know, raising a lot more capital? I think that, look, if you look at our pipeline of products, um, we have, you know, a gigantic amount of competitors, right? So uh, if you look at Ramp, who's like, uh, you know, competing with us on the corporate card and expense management space, um, and then you have all the traditional banks that are competing on the, you know, the banking space. And then, um, you know, as we launch more products, we have more competitors. I think the way that we that we think about our, 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 our product is, look, we're building a lot of products that work really well together. And we're, there's space for all these competitors because we're not gonna have 100% of market share, right? And some of our stuff only works if you use our other products. So if you wanna use just, you know, a tiny bit of our product without using the rest, you're not gonna be able to. Um, so imagine it's kind of like, uh, you know, Apple and, uh, and, and Android, right? We're kind of building the Apple experience in which everything is integrated from your banking to your expenses, you know, to your card and, you know, and lending and everything in kind of like one place versus there's a lot of people building like little pieces of the puzzle that are, you know, uh, individually competitive. And you're going to bet that your experience is that much better for companies or, you know, is that essentially the bet? That's the bet, yes. Is, is the integration between all the pieces make is it much better, right? So, you know, as an example, a customer that's a customer of Brex Card and Brex Cash has a much better experience than, you know, someone who's just using another corporate card with a random bank. Enrique, the co-CEO of Brex, thanks so much for coming on the 411. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show this week. Thanks so much to Henrique Dubagras of Brex, to Merritt Hummer of Bain Capital Ventures, and to my colleagues Burper Jin and Kay Clark for coming on the show this week. I'm Corey Weinberg, and thank you to Ariella Markowitz for producing the 411 as always. Have a great weekend, everybody.